Open that. We'll take your Bible, if you will, and turn to the book of Acts. We are in the book of Acts, and uh, we're going to go back and uh, revisit what uh, Paul shared with the governor Felix. We spent so much time last week, last Sunday morning, getting to that point in the message. We really didn't spend a whole lot of time talking about uh, what Paul shared. And if you'll remember, I'll just go back and reread that. There were three words that... Um, Luke wrote in the book of Acts and shared with us that Paul shared with Felix. And if you'll look there in verse 24, it says, After some days when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now, for when I have a convenient time, I will call for you. And I thought about those three words, and we talked a little bit about them last week, but I wanted to revisit and really just take the whole sermon time and focus on those three words, because if you take those three words and you study them a little bit and you understand them, those three words are really, you can take them as the core of our Christian message, the message that we have as the Christian church to a lost world, and to all the people who we come into contact with. And so the first word is righteousness. Now you'll remember, and I talked about this a little bit last Sunday, that Felix was a pagan governor. He was not Jewish. He was pagan. He certainly was not Christian. And we know from him, from a couple of historians of that period, that he and his brother were slaves originally. And they were freed from their slavery, and they... Um, lived in Rome, and his brother especially became very close to uh, Caesar's family and the guy that eventually became Caesar. And when there was an opening here in Judea for a governor, his brother convinced the Caesar to let Felix become the governor. So here's Felix, who was not of Roman nobility. He was up from the ranks. As I shared last Sunday, you might could say it was a bit of a Cinderella story, but it wasn't a very good Cinderella story. He wasn't like Cinderella. Uh, Felix was not really worthy of this position. And what we know about his reign from uh, Tacitus, who was a Roman historian, from Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, it was a corrupt reign. This guy was um, so corrupt, he bribes were everywhere. He morally, in terms of, of marriage, you know I shared a little bit about his wife Drusilla, he had convinced her to leave her first husband through the use of a magician. Believe it or not, the magician had gone to her, some sorcerer, and said, listen, if you'll leave uh, your husband and you'll come marry Felix, I'll do a spell and I'll, I'll just make certain that you will be the happiest woman on the face of the earth. And uh, so, according to Josephus, that's what he tells, she did that. She left her husband, and she married uh, Felix. And so you have here Felix and Drusilla, and if anybody has a right to tremble when somebody talks about righteousness, it would be Felix and Drusilla. So that's exactly what Felix did. He began to tremble. And what exactly, those three words, righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. And... I want to propose to you that if you take that first word, righteousness, that is God's standard. You take that second word, self-control, and I think we could also substitute the word repentance for that word self-control. 
It means to restrain the flesh, to have control over your flesh, to direct your flesh like a bridle on a horse. You don't just let the horse go wherever he wants to go. If he's going to be of use, you put a bridle in his mouth and you control the power of the horse. That's what self-control is. You have a body, you have a mind, but, but you can't just let it go and do whatever it wants to do or you're going to have an out-of-control life. You must put control on it. So if righteousness is God's standard... And if we say self-control and take self-control a step further and say that self-control could represent repentance, which is God's step to get us from where we are to where His standard is, the first step, I might add, and then secondly, the judgment to come. And I think it's pretty self-explanatory that God is one day going to judge. So let's take each of these three words this morning, and I want us to jump in and examine them. And first of all, that word righteousness. And again, a synonym for righteousness would be holiness. As I said, that is God's standard. Paul was reasoning. We don't get the idea that Paul is up there and he's banging on a pulpit, you know, and he's talking about holiness and righteousness. He's standing there in front of a governor, and the Bible says he reasoned with him. He's having a conversation with this governor and his wife, and, and he's conversing. And you know, you don't have to be loud to be effective. Nothing wrong with being loud. Matter of fact, in the olden days, that's why preachers were often loud. There wasn't one of these. There wasn't a microphone. And uh, you might could speak to a hundred people or so, but if your crowd got very big, the people in the back couldn't hear you. And so uh, many of the great preachers, Jonathan Edwards and some of those people in New England who were uh, in the Great Awakening, one of the things they were known for was their booming voice, that people way in the back, they could hear them speak. But you don't have to be loud to be effective. And I don't believe Paul was loud. I don't think Paul was having an emotional fit. Paul was reasoning with Felix. He was sharing with him, having a conversation with him. And that conversation, first and foremost, was about the standard that God's holiness, that God is holy. Righteousness. What is righteousness? Well, let's look in 1 Peter chapter 1, and I'm going to quote several passages. I'm going to kind of be in many different places, and you may not have time to turn there, but if you want to make a note of them, then you can go back. I'll read them to you. But 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, there Peter speaking to believers in his day. He says, Gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourself to the former lust, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, so also be holy. You also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Now Peter's talking to believers, and the point he's trying to make is that God is holy. God is righteous. He is pure. And you, as His follower, you must be holy. You must be righteous. You must be pure. Now, I know that when we get saved, and this is a very important distinction, we are saved by grace and not by our works. And when we are saved, when you come to know Jesus, when you walk down that aisle or however you came to Christ, as the old hymn says, just as I am, and you come to Jesus, warts and all, and you give yourself to Him, 
He places you in a position of right standing with Him. And you become holy in, in matters of your position, your, your, your place. Just as, you know, um, you, you, you take and, and um, you're born into a family. And when you're born into that family, you're part of that family. That's your position. You know, my um, parents are here and uh, uh, back November the 9th, 1963, um, you know, there at the old Douglas Hospital, one early one Saturday morning, Mom, Mama was in a lot of pain. I, boy, she was having a hard time, I guess. And Daddy, I don't know what he was doing. He was outside. And uh, I, I was born into the family. And I've been a pope ever since. And there's really nothing that, that I can do to undo that. But now I could, I could rebel, certainly against my father. Me and him could stop speaking. We could, we could end our relationship, you know, and, and sadly, there are families, there, there are fathers and, and children, mothers and daughters, fathers and sons that that, that has happened to, that they, they never speak again. They just simply, that's still that person's son, but their relationship is broken. So you are a Christian based on what Jesus did for you, but sometimes your relationship with your heavenly Father can be broken by your actions. And by the things that you do. And Paul, Peter is saying here, listen, your father is holy and you're his son. Act like it. Conduct yourself in the same manner that he conducts himself. And he reminds them, he says, remember. And he's making the point that you were not purchased with gold. You were purchased with the blood of Jesus. And so when you disobey the Lord you are disrespecting the blood of Jesus. You know, never think that you've got a cross, or you look at this cross up here, and most of us wouldn't dare think of just the thought of it is repulsive, you know, to take a cross. As a matter of fact, in China, that's what, Japan, they used to do that in many other places. People who would confess Christ, one of the ways they would determine if, if they were really Christians, they would make them spit or step on a cross. Now, many of them, some of them were Catholics, and, and you know, Catholics especially have a veneration for objects and for the cross. But the idea for most of us, Catholic or not, to step on a cross or to disrespect the cross, it would just be repulsive to us. But my friend, if you willingly disobey the Lord, after you've come to, to faith in Jesus Christ, if you go out and you sin and you conduct yourself in a way, you're doing much worse than stepping on a cross. You're doing much worse than spitting on the Bible. You're trampling underfoot the blood of Jesus that, that, that redeemed you from your sin and from your former life. And so Paul, Peter is making the point that God is holy. God is holy and He wants you to live holy. Righteousness. That's what he was talking to Felix about. Then Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, the writer of Hebrews says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Well, now, do you believe the Bible? I do. Do you believe the Bible is God's Word? Do you want to see the Lord? I want to see the Lord. Well, if the Bible is God's Word and it can be uh, depended upon, it clearly says that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean you have to wear a long dress or have long hair. I think when many of us in our uh, modern culture think about holiness, we think about a denomination. But uh, holiness is not a denomination. He's talking about righteousness. He's talking about living pure, living clean before the Lord. And so without holiness, we will not see the Lord. Now remember, 
There's two parts to holiness and righteousness. There's the position that God places you in through Christ, and that is your standing. You're saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. When you come to Jesus, you are placed in that position. That is the position He places you in. But then there's what we might call practical You can call it sanctification, practical sanctification or practical holiness. And that is the way you live. And that's something we have to make a decision. You make that decision every day by what comes out of your mouth, the language you use, how you treat your spouse, how you conduct your business. That's holy living. How you conduct yourself. Do you conduct yourself according to the way that God would have you do it? So again... Righteousness. He reasoned with Felix about righteousness. What is righteousness? Righteousness is God's standard. What is God's standard? God's standard is perfection. None of us can reach perfection. As a matter of fact, that's the very next passage I'm going to read, that we are not holy. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 says, There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understands. There is none that seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their way. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So God's standard is holiness, righteousness. Without it, we will not see God. But we got bad news. None of us are holy. Some of us do the best we can to live that way, but none of us are holy. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, we live in a world today, we, we, we live in a time today when uh, most of us, matter of fact, it, it is the way our culture and it seeps into the church. It's the idea that basically, I mean, all of us are good, right? I mean, everybody's pretty much a good person. And, you know, the idea of sin or the idea of you know, living or doing something that's wrong is almost foreign to our culture. As a matter of fact, there's really own, we've often heard about the unforgivable, the unpardonable sin. You know, people used to wonder, is the unpardonable sin to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? What is the unpardonable sin? Well, let me tell you, in our culture, there's only one unpardonable sin. You can kill babies. You can... Uh, You can do anything you want to do, and our culture will embrace you. There's one unpardonable sin that will get you hounded out of polite company in our culture. And that is, the only intolerable sin is to be intolerant. In other words, if I say that I believe what you're doing is wrong, then I've just committed the unpardonable sin. I'm supposed to accept everybody... And everything, no matter what they do or what they say, and I cannot say that one idea is better than another idea. I can't say that my faith, my religion, Christianity is true and your faith is false. That is the unpardonable sin in our culture. But, my friend, I'll tell you that that's exactly what Paul was doing. When Paul stood before Felix and he reasoned with him, and he reasoned with him about righteousness, what he was telling Felix was, Felix, there are things that are right 
And there are things that are wrong. And Felix, you are living on the wrong side. Your actions are wrong. And you need to change those actions. Self-control, repentance. And Felix, if you don't change those actions, there is coming a judgment when you will give an account to a judge of the universe for your actions. And Paul was committing that unpardonable sin, and Felix was trembling before that. So, when Paul spoke to him, and let's fast forward it, Felix is dead and gone, and he's went on to meet his judgment, as well as Drusilla and Paul and all of those in this passage, but we're still here. We'll st- we are still here. So when we talk about righteousness, and, and I've told this story before, when we talk about sin, it's all well and good when we talk about generalities, but remember the story I told you about, I think it was, I think it was Calvin Coolidge, I can't remember, but one of the presidents in the early part of the 20th century had gone to church there in Washington, D.C., and you know this was before uh, you know, television and all this kind of stuff. Newspaper reporters were waiting for him outside, and they wanted to write an article about you know, the president going to church and, and all that happened. And uh, he was known to be a man of very few words. Would have never been elected in our modern age, no doubt. But he wasn't a man who talked a lot. But they asked him, they said, Mr. President, you know, how was the sermon? He said, good. I thought, well, you know, that, that's not going to make much of an article. Well, what did he preach on? Sin. Well, what did he say about it? He was against it. Well, you know, we talk about generalities, be holy. We talk about be righteous. We talk about repentance. Well, well all that, we, you know, we could all say amen all day long. Well, what does that mean? I mean, it has to mean something in terms of actions or words. Well, fortunately, the Bible does not leave us in the dark. The Bible gives us actions that we can do things that people are doing right now all around us, that the Lord, the Bible, the judge of the universe, that God considers to be sinful, that God considers to be unrighteous. And thankfully, there was a church in the Bible that was very much like our modern churches today. It was a church called Corinth. And in that church, when Paul writes the letter to 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, it always helps, by the way, you'll understand Scripture a lot better. Before you read a book in the Bible, try to find out a little bit about the context when it was written. You know, who was it written to? Why did the person that wrote it write it? What was happening? And if you'll study about the church at Corinth, what you'll find out was Corinth was one of the most wicked, immoral cities in the ancient world. And I've shared this before, you may remember, but there was a verb in ancient uh, times to play the Corinthian or to Corinthicize. What that meant was to be a person who had no morals whatsoever. That they would do anything, they had no, nothing was out of bounds. It, you know, matter of fact, uh, the writer of Amazing Grace, John Newton, he took an old English word that we don't use Uh, very many times anymore and it's on his tombstone to describe him that he used to be a libertine a libertine and a libertine was a person uh, who had no morals they did anything they wanted to and and they absolutely uh, didn't think anything was out of bounds so in in Corinth that's the way Corinth was it was a seaport a lot of sailors came in and out of there and I guess sailors had the same reputation 2,000 years ago maybe they 
do today. No offense to any uh, sailors here today. But uh, such it was, there were people from all over the world, many different cultures that would go to Corinth and they were in and out. And so really there wasn't any standards there. Well, lo and behold, people got saved in Corinth and a church was started in Corinth. And you know what normally happens in a church? That church, whatever culture it's in, is affected by the culture it's in. And one of the problems in Corinth, when Paul wrote to them, if you read 1 Corinthians, he talks about immorality a lot because... That's what was happening in Corinth. But the problem was it wasn't just happening outside, it was happening inside. And you know, Paul gets very upset. You know, we should be a welcoming church. Every church should be a welcoming church. But did you know in Corinth, there's never a place where Paul tells them to be more welcoming. You know what their problem is? They're too welcoming. As, you know, as a matter of fact, do you know what Paul tells them in chapter 6? He says, you know what? You need to put some people out of the church. It's what you need to do. Now imagine that. Imagine that from the Apostle Paul. He said, you've got people in the church that need to be kicked out. That's exactly what Paul said. And the problem was, in the Corinthian church, there was someone there who was committing incest with their, with their stepmother. And Paul says, you all know about it, but nobody does anything about it. You're arrogant. You think everything's great and everything is wonderful. And so Paul, all through the book of 1 Corinthians, he is admonishing this church that sin has consequences and you have sin in the middle of your church and you're doing nothing about it and it's going to have consequences. Well, as he's writing to them, he begins to explain what sin is. You know, sometimes we need to do that. We need to understand now exactly what is sin. I'm against sin. You know, as the old saying is, everybody's against it till you start naming it. You know, then folks get uncomfortable. You know, yeah, I'm against sin, hallelujah, but, whoa, not that. I didn't, I'm not, well, hold on about that. Now you quit preaching and go on to meddling. But 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, what we should do is we should examine ourselves. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, we're talking about righteousness. He says, do you not know, and remember the context, he's talking to believers who've allowed all kinds of things to creep into their church and into their lives, and, and they've lost sight of, of God's standard. They've lost sight of His righteousness. He says, Do you not understand that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And then he goes through a list. And this is certainly not an inclusive list, but it is a list. And by the way, you know, we've got a lot of talk today about uh, matter of fact, Andy Stanley, whom I love and, and respect in many ways, but he, he wrote a book, made a comment some time ago about the Ten Commandments not being for today. Well, I think I understand what he means. The law is not for today. The law has been fulfilled through the New Testament. But I think we have to be careful. There's a mindset in the modern church today that all you have to do is just love everybody. Just love everybody and it doesn't matter what they do. And Paul begs to differ. It does matter what you do. And just in terms of the Ten Commandments, if you, if you will realize it and read the New Testament, every one of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament except one. And that is to remember the Sabbath, to keep it holy. And there, there's an obvious uh, give and take with the Apostle Paul that you don't have to keep the Jewish Sabbath because it's part of the ceremonial law. But every other commandment in 
the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. And we certainly believe that the New Testament gives us our standard for morality. So when we talk about morality, look there in verse number 9. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Now let's just take those one at a time. Number one, fornicators. Who is a fornicator? What is a fornicator? Fornicator simply means a person who has sex with someone before they're married, really. An adulterer is a person who has sex with someone who is not their spouse. A fornicator is a person who has sexual relations to someone they are not married to. Now, that is rampant in our society today. It's rampant in the church. Don't raise your hand. But no doubt it is rampant in the church. And it's accepted. You know, you watch watch television and, and you look at media... Uh, Lloyd and I were up in Atlanta a couple of weeks ago, and we were in the lobby of a hotel, and there was a they were doing like a there was a young lady there, and she was singing just I guess kind of entertain the people that were there, and she had this little screen that she was looking at that had the words, you know, so she could remember what she was singing, and it was kind of a modern song. I, I don't know what the song was, but uh, she's singing it. You know, sounded. It was a female, some female artist song. And I was just watching the words go by, and I had to hurry up and curve, up, curve Lloyd's eyes up. No. Actually, I thought about doing that. I'm talking about the most vile words. Now, the, the, the girl that was singing it, she, she didn't sing those words. She put a different word in there. But the fact that here it is, this is a popular song, and it's talking about the B word and the F word and every word you can imagine... You know, on this song, talking about her love for this guy, and and it was the, it it was just the most vile thing I've seen. And here it was in a, in a hotel lobby. And my friend, it won't be long before she won't have to substitute the words. It'll just be accepted just to say those words in general public. And you turn on almost any television show, and everybody's jumping in the bed with one another. And if there's anybody who says, you know, I'm 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 going to be a virgin until I get married. Well, they're lampooned and made fun of, and you must be the most idiotic, backwoods person in the world because you're not going to engage in sexual activity before you get married. Well, listen, remember, God's grace can cover anything, and I'm not here to beat up on people, but I just want you to have a clear understanding of what sin is. Sex before marriage is sin before God. And my friend, if you want to live for God and you want to honor Him, that's something you need to put outside the bounds of what you plan on doing. That is sin before the Lord. Secondly, he says fornication, idolaters. Now, idolaters simply mean a person who worships a false god or a false religion. And again, we're stepping on a sacred cow in our modern world today because you know what we're told is, listen... You know, everybody's, let everybody believe what they want to believe. It doesn't matter. As long as they're good people and they don't bother anybody else, it doesn't matter. Just let them believe whatever they want to believe. Well, my friend, again, the Apostle Paul begs to differ. He says that folks that worship 
anything or anybody other than the one true God will not inherit the kingdom of God. These people are sinning before God. Let me just give you one of the reasons that's true. The Bible says in Revelation 9.20 and also in 1 Corinthians 10.20 that when people worship an idol, and and we're talking about in pagan world, but I can fast forward that to today as well. But when you worship anything or anybody other than the one true God, what you're doing... You're not, you're not, they weren't worshiping some golden idol. The Bible says in Revelation 9.20, But the rest of mankind who were not killed by the plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor talk. In 1 Corinthians 10.20, Paul said this, Rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrificed, they sacrificed to demons and not to God, and I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. So my friend, any religious system that is not about the one true God, I propose to you, my friend, that it is demonic. And these people who worshiped in these pagan temples, they were involved in a demonic activity. They were in darkness. They were in bondage. And people today who are worshiping religions that are outside of the truth of God's Word, they are in bondage. And they are in spiritual darkness. And the Bible says they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why do you think we send missionaries? Why do you think Cliff Sims is over there in Indonesia trying to tell people about Jesus if everybody's okay, if they just believe whatever they believe and do the best they can? Because they're in darkness. And they need to know the light. And so when people are bound up in false religion, then they are outside. That, that is a sin. Now, they may think themselves righteous. Matter of fact, Paul is the great example. Paul said he's lived a clean conscience all of his life. He thought he was doing the right thing until God opened his eyes on that road to Damascus and he came face to face with Jesus and God changed him. But let's quickly, we're going to run out of time here. He says, nor adulterers. Well, that's another sexual sin. I'm sure all of us understand what that means. It means what it says. Fornication is sex before marriage. Adultery is sex outside of marriage. You're married and you have sexual relations with someone that you're not married to. Or you're not married and you have sex with somebody who is married. That is sin before God. And, and we certainly don't have time, and I'm fast running out of time, but let me just throw this in here right quick. You know, a lot of people, you know, th- their criticism of Christian morality is, you know, you, you Christians, y'all just hung up on sex. Y'all just all uptight. You know, y'all scared somebody's going to have a good time somewhere. And uh, good gracious of life, I wish y'all, you know, turn loose of that. Listen, if you understand, and Paul talks about it here in 1 Corinthians, he says, he says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're made in the image of God. Uh, as a matter of fact, let me just read it. I see it. It's right in front of me. It won't take but a minute. Verse number 18. He says, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he that commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. One of the reasons that that sex is such a serious thing, it is how people are brought into the world. You know, think about the the miracle of life. The miracle of life. 
know, we've had a lot of talk about abortion. My goodness, these past couple of weeks, we don't have time for all that either. But, but, but that's one of the reasons we are, we are just fully behind the sanctity of human life because human life is precious and sacred. And how is human life, how is it conceived? Through the union of a man and woman. And that union is sacred. That is a sacred union before the Lord. And so it is, very, it is more than just physical pleasure. See, and that's what the world wants to turn it into, that it's just, it's just physical pleasure. You should be able to just do what you want to do with who you want to do it with. Oh, no. No, if you're made in the image of God, and God has created you in His image, then, my friend, the union of a man and a woman is a sacred thing. It is a sacred thing before God. And, and not only that, but do you know what union, what earthly union God uses to remind us of the union between Christ and the church? The church is called the what? The bride of Christ. The bride of Christ. Heaven, when we get to heaven, what is that called? The marriage supper of the Lamb. So this idea of a physical union between men, a man and a woman is also, it's like a picture of Christ who is the bridegroom and the church who is the bride. So my friend, it is much, much more than simply physical pleasure. It is something we do that honors God. And, and, and again, I, I know we've got, you know, all ages in here, but, you know, God created sex. He did, absolutely. God created it. You know, if you got a problem with your, with your Jeep, and it's a brand new one, where do you go to get, how do you, you just go to that guy that works on that oak tree down there, say, hey, my brand new Jeep, no, forget the Jeep, my brand new BMW, my brand new BMW, some of you might be Jeeps, I'm a BMW, uh, my brand new BMW is giving me a problem, could you, you know, take your screwdriver and, and see if you can get this thing tuned up a little bit? You, I hope you got better sense than that. If you got enough sense to buy a BMW, you go down to Jacksonville or you go down to up to Macon, you go somewhere where the technicians are and they've got the computers, they built the thing, and they plug it in and they tell you, well, here's what's wrong. That's just as idiotic, my friend, as, as people today saying, you know what, I, I won't be happy. And I, I know the man that created the God that created me said to, you know, find a husband, find a wife, be faithful to them, you know, keep that that, that marriage union holy. I know that's what he says. But you know, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to do what I want to do. Good luck. Good luck, my friend. That's not what God said to do. And, and again, I, I quote uh, one of my great heroes of the faith, Adrian Rogers. You know, when God says, Thou shalt not, you've heard me say it. What is He saying? Don't hurt yourself. When God says, Thou shalt not, He's saying, Don't hurt yourself. When God says, Thou shalt, what is He saying? Help yourself. God is good. God wants us to be fulfilled. And I am fully convinced with every fiber of my being that the way to be fully fulfilled is to follow God and follow His commands and trust Him and serve Him. As the old song says, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. I thought it was going to be short today. I'm sorry. Um, neither fornicators, homo, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, or sodomites. Now, my friends... If there is one sin in both the Old and the New Testament that is consistently condemned in every place it is mentioned with no hesitation and no ambiguity, it is homosexuality. And it is the relationship between a man and a man and a woman and a woman. It doesn't matter if they marry one another. It doesn't matter if it's monogamous. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are. The Bible, if it's ever clear about anything, 
it is clear that homosexual activity is sinful. Now, I know that there are people uh, that had that temptation. I read from a woman, a lesbian woman, uh, who was married to a, a lesbian partner some probably a, a year or two ago, and how she uh, was converted to Christianity. And I thought it was the best testimony I've ever read about the struggles of homosexuality. This woman said when she became a Christian, she didn't immediately stop being attracted to the opposite sex, but she understood that was a temptation she had. And she, by faith, believed that God would make her whole if she followed, by faith, His leading. And that's exactly what she did. And I wish I could read it, but we don't have time. But the bottom line is... Listen, you know, you always hear about the preacher running off with the piano player. Well, thank God we ain't got a piano player. <laughs> you know, so. yeah. Thank you, Lord. There but by the grace of God go I. I, I yeah, I just don't know what to say to that, but we move on. But you've all heard about, you know, the, the, the preacher, maybe somebody in the, in, the, you know, in the church that, you know, the preacher, a good man, no doubt. The person that sings in the, in the, in the uh, plays the piano, a good woman, no doubt. But does that mean that they're, they're both good people? You know, probably love their families, good, good daddy, good mama. But does that make their attraction for one another holy just because they're good people? It doesn't. Does that mean it's okay for them to run off with one another and leave their spouses? It doesn't. By the same token with homosexuality. Just because a person has a temptation in that area, they have a desire in that area, that desire doesn't make it okay. Lord knows, if that made it okay, we'd be in a mess, wouldn't we? If every time we had a desire, we did what we wanted to do, God help us, you know? And, and, and you know what they call that? They call that hedonism. Every culture that's ever tried it ended up going down in flames because that is not the way... To be happy. So, uh, anyway, we're just about going to have to stop. Um, <laughs> nor thieves. Nor thieves. Now, of course, a thief is a person who, who has a sin of greed. Nor covetous. Actually, that goes in with thievery. Nor drunkards. Now, you know, that brings up the whole subject of alcohol. And I, I know that's a, a kind of a sore subject in our modern culture. And the Bible is very clear that you should never be drunk. Absolutely. The Bible is very clear about the danger of alcohol. Now, the Bible never says that it's a sin for you to drink. But where the difficulty comes in is, you know, when do you stop? Are you drunk after one drink or two drinks or three drinks? Now, I don't drink. If you ask me my advice, my advice to you would be, don't drink. Now, if you choose to drink, I'll make a deal with you. I'm not going to judge you for doing something that the Bible does not forbid if you don't look down your nose at me and judge me because I choose not to do it. You see? So you have the liberty to do as you choose. Just be careful. As a person who loves you, I would say be careful. Be careful because addiction, whether it's to alcohol or to some drug, it sneaks up on you. And usually the person who is addicted doesn't know it or will not admit it. And, and again, I, I, it doesn't say anything but drunkenness, but that's all they had 2,000 years ago. I mean, they'd love to have had a couple of Xanaxes and some Valium, but they wanting to be found. You know, and there's folks that would never take a drink, but they'll take more Xanaxes and Valium and nerve pills 
you know, as the doctor will give them. Now, again, I'm not telling you quit taking your Xanax. You know, you might need it. If the doctor's giving you medicine, don't ever stop until you get with your doctor. But the point I'm making, whatever it is, if it's alcohol, if it's some drug that you take that puts you to the point of numbness, drunkenness, we would say, whether it's under alcohol or any other drug, then, my friend, you are treading on dangerous ground. All right, it's not going to be quick, but I I am going to get through. Uh, Nor revilers, that's people that use their tongue as a weapon. We could spend another 30 minutes on that. We all know folks like that. Nor extortioners, that's people who uh, simply um, swindle and they cheat, they embezzle, uh, they steal indirectly. Um, And my goodness, I hadn't got to the best part of the message, and that's repentance. I've told you all the sins, but how do you get out of them? Right? Maybe we'll finish that next Sunday because we've been going at it 40 minutes and the mind can only observe what the butt can take. So, (laughs) at least you're not asleep. I I, I see that. The point I want to make in the message, and I'll stop right in the middle and I will just have to finish next Sunday, Lord willing. But the point I want to make, we just got, there was three of them, we just got to the first one, righteousness, and it may take three Sundays. But the point is this, my friend. And you could go to Galatians, uh, where there's another list. It adds a few and it subtracts a few. You know, the point is this. There are things that the Bible very clearly says are outside of God's will for your life. And if you're interested in serving God and honoring Him, then my friend, you need to read those things. You and I, the Bible, Paul says and Peter said, Be holy, for your Father is holy. Live for Him. Honor Him. So, my friend, we need to do that. Now, next Sunday, Lord willing, I'm going to talk about that second item, self-control, and we're going to take the word repentance. I mean, again, I think one of the problems with our modern culture and modern church is we just say, just believe in Jesus. Just trust Jesus. You'll be okay. Well, there's a lot of truth to that, but you know the word that is most oftenly used in Scripture to talk about coming to faith in Christ starts with R. Anybody know what it is? Repentance. Over and over again, this word is used. Repent. Repent and be baptized. Repent and and come to faith. So we're going to talk. What does that mean? We've talked about all kinds of sins today. But next Sunday, Lord willing, we're going to talk about how to get out of them. How to turn our back, utilize that self-control, how to get out of of sin through godly repentance. Let's pray. Father, we come to You in Jesus' name. We thank You for Your love and for Your grace. And God, we know that when you give us command, it is not to keep us from having a good time, so to speak. It is not to keep us from enjoying life, but it is to help us to be able to enjoy the life that you've given us. To do it, Father, with a clear conscience and a clear mind. And Father, I pray for each of us that are gathered here today. Father, first of all, I submit myself to you and I ask you to search my heart. And Lord, anything in my life, any attitude, any thought, any action that is not pleasing to You, I ask You, God, make me uncomfortable with it. And Father, help me to turn from it and repent and to follow You in sincerity and truth. And Father, I pray that for every member of this fellowship, of this church. I pray, God, that You would fall upon us in a new and a fresh way, that You would help us to follow You in sincerity and truth. Father, I pray if there's one here who believes they can be happy without You, Lord, that they can live their life the way they want to live it and they don't need You. I pray, Lord, You would awaken in their heart that need they have for You. And Lord, You would fill that void in their heart that nothing else can fill, that they would submit themselves to You and they would live their life 
under your guidance and through the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we stand and we sing a hymn of invitation, if you're here this morning, maybe God has spoken to your heart. I would be loved to pray with you. Maybe you want to come and pray. You just obey the Holy Spirit as we sing.